Harper's just better now. That's all you can say. Run, Lindsey! Lindsey Scott! Lindsey Scott! Lindsey Scott! Welcome to the Blog the Dogs podcast. I'm Herschel Gurley here as always with my co-host, Boss Dog. Boss, bark at the people. Welcome back, everyone. Today we have another interview guest for you, former UGA wide receiver Chris Durham. Chris's story is awesome for a number of reasons. And selfishly, if you stacked up the things that I enjoy the most, it's probably 1A SEC Georgia Bulldogs football, and then 1B, all things Italy. And Chris is like all of that in one. So it's fantastic. I thought he was great, told some great stories, some really cool connections, uh, especially about his time in Detroit. So we are really excited for y'all to hear this. Uh, Here's our interview with former Georgia wide receiver, Chris Durham. We are excited to have Chris Durham here with us today. Chris was a wide receiver for the Dogs from 2006 through 2010. He was born and raised in Georgia, played at Calhoun High School, uh, had a great career there as a football player, basketball player, and a track athlete. Uh, After his collegiate career at UGA, he was drafted in the fourth round by the Seattle Seahawks in the 2011 NFL Draft, spent time with the Seahawks, Lions, Titans, and Raiders in the NFL before transitioning to the Italian-American Football League with the Parma Panthers. So we are thrilled to be joined today by Chris Durham. Welcome to the program, Chris. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, man. So first off, we just wanted to kind of start with, I guess, your Georgia origin story. So can you tell us a little bit about growing up in Georgia and then eventually starting high school at Calhoun? Yeah, so uh, I grew up in Georgia, as you alluded to, uh, in Calhoun. My dad actually ran track at Georgia, so I grew up a dog fan. My mom's brother actually played at Clemson, and his two sons are there now playing. But, you know, I was a dog through and through all growing up. You know, so I remember going to games, whether it was basketball, track track meets, football games, all you know, a little bit of everything. So when uh, it came my time to make a decision, there was really only one choice. Oh, that's great. So yeah, talk to us a little bit about your time at Calhoun. Well, first off, let me, I want to touch on this because I read this and this was extremely interesting because I hadn't heard it before, but did I read that you were a competitive BMX rider as a kid? Yeah, I'm surprised you found that out. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was like, probably like uh, 10 years old or so in my hometown, there was a BMX track and I was always competitive and I had a few friends in the neighborhood that loved to ride bikes. That was kind of their outlet for sport where I was playing baseball, basketball, like anything with a ball. I was that well, you know, these guys are out racing. And so being competitive by nature, I wanted to join. So I got really into racing BMX. Um, at one point I was ranked nationally, like top 10, 15 in my age group, you know, when I was like 10, 12 years old, uh, I raced for probably like four or five years. And my dad to this day still thinks that it helped with my speed because of like the rotation of your legs, like constantly pedaling and doing it at a high velocity. He really thinks it helps my turnover when running. So he thought it'd be, a, you know, an advantage when it came to uh, sprinting and stuff, less conditioning and all that. So he loved it as far as just getting out there and trying to become a better athlete. Now, did I read the transition out of that was less about you losing interest in it and more about you just grew so much and got so tall that that riding the bike just wasn't really functional anymore? Yeah, so I had a custom bike. My dad went all out for me. He, uh, you know, he found this guy that 
created these custom bikes for a lot of the nationally ranked riders with the national sponsorships. And so we found this guy and he created my bike based off of my height, my weight, everything in between. And all of a sudden I hit a growth spurt and I went from being about, you know, five, three, five, four to all of a sudden I was five, eight. And then the following year I was about six, two. So obviously my weight and height grew exponentially over the course of about 18 months. So, uh, outgrew the bike, you know, sports, as far as our traditional sports kind of got in the way. And I kind of went that route instead. That's interesting. So absent some genetics, this could have been an X game story and not a dog story, right? Yeah. I mean, they actually do have the type of BMX that I was doing is actually in the Olympics now. Um, Oh, that's cool. You know, so it wasn't the tricks and the, the ramps and all that stuff. It was the actual like tracks where you race, like you have a gate, they drop the gate and you have eight people lined up and you all try to race around the track as fast as possible. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. So it sounds like you come from a very athletic family uh, and that translated into your time at Calhoun. Uh, You're obviously a decorated football player, class two, a defensive player of the year, one year, um, also a very good basketball player and had track speed. I mean, did I, did I read you were four by four state runner up one year? Yeah. So we, um, yeah, we got, uh, we got passed with about, 10 meters left to go in that race. Um, it was actually, the track meet was over at Jefferson. So not too far outside of Athens. Um, that was where the state track meet was when I was coming through, but yeah, we, uh, we had a good athletic just school in general, especially being two way. I mean, we had multiple guys go play sports in college. There's two guys that were younger than me that were are in the MLB, Charlie Culberson for the Braves. Uh, I went to high school with Charlie and a kid named Josh Smoker. They both play in the major leagues. You know, we had another kid that was a few years after me, Derek Rogers, played in the NFL. So we've had some, you know, a couple guys go play basketball overseas as well. I mean, we had a really athletic community, a very close-knit community, and a lot of support, you know, from the local businesses and all that. It was, you know, what you see on TV as far as all the Texas football, the Friday Night Lights, that's pretty much what it was in Calhoun. Great coaching, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't change it for the world. So you were a two-way guy in high school. Was there a desire to play defense in college, or were you always recruited as a wideout? What was your recruitment story like, and what was the path there? So originally, I was—I didn't come to football. I played it as a young kid. I stopped playing when I got to high school because I was going to focus on basketball. And going into my sophomore year, we were doing some summer basketball tournaments, and I was playing AAU and doing all, all of that. And I was getting looked at by – Florida State was talking to me in some smaller schools like Kennesaw State, different schools around the southeast. But I talked to Florida State and a couple other major universities, but still had that itch. And then, you know, I ended up there was some stuff, you know, some conversations that were going on behind the scenes. And I knew I always knew I'd come back to football my junior year. And I ended up coming in uh, my sophomore year, joining the team right before camp started and joined the team then. So I only played offense my sophomore and junior year and then my senior year we lost a lot of talent on the defensive side so our defensive coordinator just asked me to go out and play defense so I went out there and it worked out pretty well but my recruitment was always about receiver. And was Georgia kind of the lead school the entire time or were there multiple schools coming after and you really had to make a decision or was was Georgia always in your heart and once they offered that's kind of where you were headed? Uh, I mean like I said I grew up Georgia guy. I was never scared of the competition. I was never scared of wherever I was going. I knew that I was going to compete and I just needed the opportunity. Well, I had offers 
from some ACC, SEC schools and stuff like that. But nowadays it's obviously very different with social media, technology, all of that. So when I got the offer from Georgia, I was on a kind of a spring break tour. So I'd gone up to Clemson and Duke and uh, North Carolina, and I'd come down and been to Auburn, Georgia, all that. And as soon as Coach Rick pulled me in his office, I – you know, I knew it was game over for me. My dad about fell out of the chair. That's where he, I think he wanted me to go. <laughs> you know, that's how that worked out. All right. So you get to Georgia, um, your career there, you're really part of some very interesting teams, really some part of interesting transitions as well. You know, 05 dogs win the SEC championship with Shockley at quarterback. 06 is really the transition, really the Stafford taking over. 07 team wins the Sugar Bowl. Could you really speak to your time at Georgia, just your overall career, your thoughts on your career, and then really about the transition into Stafford, how the the offensive changes, and then really the transition, how the offense changed after Stafford left, and if it did, because to the fans' perspective, the offense really didn't seem to change that much when when Stafford left and Cox took over. So my journey, I actually enrolled early. So I came in with Matthew, but right before that, I actually got to practice because of the rules at the time. I got to practice with the team leading up to the Sugar Bowl versus West Virginia that was in Atlanta because of the hurricane. So I was able to compete, go out there and compete. I was there with a kid named Asher Allen. Asher was a corner for us. Asher and I came in early and went to practice there for about two or three weeks and were able to handle that. And then we all arrive in January DJ, so Shock had left. Quarterback position's wide open. So Matthew's there. You got Joe Cox, Joe T, um, and Blake Barnes. And so those are our four quarterbacks. Obviously, Matthew, with all of, I guess, the media and everything else about him for being the number one quarterback. So going into spring and fall, and, you know, I remember Matthew's first pass uh, in the spring game that year was to Mikey for a touchdown. I can't remember if it was a corner or a go route or something, but I just remember it being a touchdown. But yeah, leading up into that, uh, Coach Rick was still pretty much calling the plays that year because Coach Bobo was just the, uh, the quarterback coach. And so the first game, Joe doesn't come in until probably after halftime. Um, I think we're playing, was it Western Kentucky? I believe it was. Um, Western Kentucky. Matthew comes in. I remember the everyone chanting, we want Stafford, we want Stafford. And I actually, my first catch in college was from Matthew. On that on that drive, I had like two or three catches from him on that drive. And then we get all the way down to the, to the goal line and he throws the touchdown to Coleman Watson and I was wide open. I was like, come on, man. Like, <laughs> really? But yeah, so then that year Matthew took over until he had a, you know, not a very good game uh, against Colorado and Joe comes in. And wins it for us uh, and then you know it was a battle that following week until Matthew took over and then history's history uh, that following year though we uh, we transitioned to coach Bobo being the offensive coordinator so the offense changed up a little bit and it was more I guess a little more tailored to our running game um, even though Matthew had such a strong arm we had four running backs that obviously played in the NFL with no Sean Craig Danny Thomas you know we had great running back back you know, by committee and no Sean was coming in off his red shirt year. And so actually Danny left that year cause no Sean was coming in. Um, but yeah, so then the offense didn't transition much after that coach Bobo kind of stayed true to who he is, regardless of what the quarterback situation was. And there's um, he more tailored it to calling what their strengths are, but he also 
made sure that guys were in the positions that he felt were necessary for our team to be the most successful. So offense didn't change much. He just tailored his calls based off of the quarterback and the skill positions abilities. Um, so it may not look different, but he, he added some wrinkles in there for Joe. And then eventually my senior year for Aaron, things were a little differently called. Honest question. You do you think if the, cause this is a conversation Herschel and I've had many, many times. Do you think if the college football playoff was around in 07 that y'all are national ch- champions? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we lost two games early that year, but we were the hottest team going into the, uh, what would be the playoffs because LSU ended up winning. I think it would have been a great game. But uh, when we did not get into the SEC championship, it was kind of like a coin toss. I think it was us, Tennessee, maybe South Carolina or Florida won. Um, I don't remember. But it was kind of a three-way tie. We had all beat each other, and I don't remember how they figured it out. I don't remember the you know, the tiebreaker. But, uh, yeah, if we would have been able to get in at that point, I, I think we would have won. I mean – you know, hindsight, I guess you, you, you can always say that. But, yeah, we uh, we were definitely probably the hottest and most uh, talented team at that moment. Okay. So what are your thoughts on your overall career uh, while you were a dog? You know, there's a lot of things that I would not change about it. Still looking back, I think I could have been, you know, just to be transparent as possible, I could have been used a little bit differently and better. Um you know, I did exactly what the team wanted. I was never tried to be a headache. If I got the ball, I got the ball. If I didn't catch the ball, I didn't. But, you know, I did not have as many receptions or yards or anything else um, while I was in school. You know, I was surrounded by fantastic and talented people. So we had to spread the ball a little more. And the offense is different uh, then than, you know, I guess it is now. And even looking at Bobo and the way he calls offenses now when he was out of Colorado State and you know, probably what he's going to do now that he's in South Carolina. I think, uh, you know, things could have been tailored and I could have had a better numbers career. But as far as did I make the wrong decision here or there? No, like that was the perfect decision for me. And I was happy to contribute the way I did because I feel like I'd had an impact on helping us win games. So you have a really good senior year sets you up going into that 2011 draft. Can you take us through what the what the draft process looked like and then kind of what it was like to be drafted in the NFL. I can imagine that that was just elation for, for you and your family. So I got hurt going into my fourth year. So I played freshman, sophomore, junior. Roles were different. You couldn't just play in four games or that would have really helped Joe out because I think Joe still to this day holds it against me for not playing that fourth year when he was the quarterback. I've actually, I actually talked to him recently about it. He's still, <laughs> it still bothers him. You know, so that fourth year I red shirt, I come back my fifth year fully healthy. And my body had definitely matured over that time. I felt more confident. I was stronger. I was, you know, I knew I was the oldest person. And I'd been there forever. You know, I'd come in early, now redshirted. So going into that year, AJ was a junior. He was suspended the first few games. So, and I think Tavares may have been uh, out that first game as well. So getting that first game, you know, I played pretty well. Um, And it just kind of led to confidence throughout the season. And, you know, then you get to the end of the year and it's time to go train and do all that. And so I remember after training, coming back for pro day, uh, only thing everyone was really focused on was my 40 time. They knew I could jump. They knew I could run pretty well. Everyone kept asking me the teams and they're like, can you run under four, six? Can you get into the four fives? Can you get into the four fives? That's all anybody wanted to know. 
So I remember at Pro Day, you know, having to go through and do all of the different events and all of that. And I weighed in, you know, I drank like a gallon of water that morning. I had to pee so bad. Um, <laughs> um, and so I weighed in, I think I weighed in at like 216, 217, which was the heaviest I'd been at the time. Um, so I finished all that and uh, we get to the 40 and I have a coach from... Maybe in Cincinnati. Uh, I don't remember which team it was. He comes up to me and he asked me directly. He goes, if you run under four six, you'll be on our draft board. And I just looked at him. He goes, you think you can do that? And I was like, easily. Like, why are you insulting me is kind of, I guess, I don't know if I gave that kind of cockiness off. It wasn't what I intended. But, yeah, so I get out there and I ran the 40, uh, the first one. And I saw, like, and so I run the first one and then, as you're finishing, um, I could see my dad and my dad's a track guy, as I mentioned. So my dad clocks it. And so I kind of look at him because I felt like I was like, had a good start. Like my biggest issue was because I'm tall is going to be my start. I know I have the speed, but so I look at him and he just looked down at his watch and was just like, I don't know if I got it. And so I ran over to him before I ran my second one. And he goes, I got you at four, four, one. And I was like, okay, well, you're a little far off. I mean, you know, I was like, so I definitely ran under four, six, like, and, uh, you know, it came back that the Steelers had me at four, three, nine, a few teams had me at four, four, seven, and they came up with average at like four, four, three. And so when I went up, they made me run again. I ran like a four, four, six on the second one, but you couldn't tell me anything after that. I was like, there you go. But yeah, so then I went on 10 or 11 visits to different teams, you know, during that process, which I guess now this year, it's been a little different because teams can have, I think, 30 prospects in per year. And so I went to 10 different teams and it was a nightmare. Like I flew, you know, as far as training, because I would, you'd be there for two days. So I flew to Seattle and then I would turn around and be home for like a day. And then I went to like Cincinnati, which all they wanted to talk to me about was AJ. So they didn't want me. They just wanted AJ. And then I go from there to Detroit. And then I literally remember I was at somewhere and I flew directly to New York. And then from New York, I flew directly to Jacksonville. And then I was supposed to fly to Kansas City, but instead they wanted to work me out. So I flew home. And the next day I like work out for Kansas City. And it was just nonstop. I was flying everywhere in the country to these different teams so that they could do their own because I'd been injured. So my their own medical checks on me. They wanted to put me on the board and talk to me and do all that. So it was a very intense, um, exciting time. And then uh, you get to draft day. Um, and if you would have made me, you know, put a, put a wager on it, I would have said fifth round of Chicago would have been my guess. You know, I knew that Seattle had interest because I'd been out there. That's kind of a funny story. So as we, uh, so I was getting ready for the draft that, because that's when they changed it to the three-day. And so I was getting ready for the draft that morning. I couldn't sleep the night before, Saturday morning. I went with my mom for birthdays around that time. Um, and so we went, and I was going around with her, and we get back to my house, and the draft's already started. I was like, I don't want to sit here and just watch this all day. Like, get me out of the house. And we didn't have anywhere to go, so we get back to my house, and the draft started. And I see Clint Bowling get drafted. And I was like, awesome like here's Clint getting drafted two picks later Luke Stocker who I trained with gets drafted and I was like wow like bam bam like here's two guys that I know you know this is awesome and I think Clint was like the 99th pick or something and then Luke was like 101 and I was like this is great but I hadn't slept I was like all right you know I'm just gonna lay down relax 
try not to watch this or think about it. Again, I thought I was going in the fifth round. So I lay down, I put my phone on my chest. Um, but then I was like, wait, I need to put it on ring. In case I fall asleep, like somebody at least hear it. And as soon as I turned it on ring and put it on my chest, it starts going off. And I looked down at the area code. I was like, I don't know who that is. So I just answer it. And it was, uh, <laughs> it was John Schneider from the GM for the Seahawks. And so Schneider asked me, he was like talking to me. He was like, Hey, I think we're going to take you with the next pick, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I, I assume, cause I saw they had just picked KJ Wright. Um, so I assumed it was in the fifth round. I was like, okay. Um, not knowing that their pick was coming up and I was like, all right, um, you know, great. He's like, do you have any issues? I know you grew up in Georgia, played at Georgia. Do you have any issues moving to the West coast? And I was like, no, he goes, and he goes, all right, do you have any problems with competing with the guys that we have out here? And I guess my phone broke up because he didn't hear me. And I was like, and he goes, so you do? And I was like, no. And he goes, he goes, well, if you do, then we'll just wait till our fifth round pick to take you. And I go, well, you can do that, but I won't be there then is what I said to him. <laughs> and so he told him to send the pick in and then they hand the phone over to Pete. And I talked to Pete for a little while and that, you know, my dad fell out of the chair and it was like, I'd walked into um, another room in our house on the phone. And as uh, soon as like, they told me they were selecting me, I like sprint through the house with like my arms up in the air, my uncle, my mom and dad were only there. And then that night you think it'd be some kind of epic story. And I went to my cousins who's now playing at Clemson. I went to his, like T-ball. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So you get drafted by Seattle and then as fate would have it, you end up in Detroit where Matthew's the quarterback. Um, and if I did my reading and research correctly, you and Matthew were roommates at UGA, right? Yeah. So Matthew and I enrolled early together. Uh, we were roommates then. And then, you know, sophomore, junior year as well before. And I actually went to New York with him uh, for the draft uh, as well as our other roommates, uh, Sean Chappis and Fred Munzenmeyer. Uh, we all went up there and um, enjoyed that. So I lived with Matthew while I was in Athens. Um, our families were very close at the time. Uh, obviously, Matthew and I were very close at the time, along with our other roommates. And, you know, I got hurt my fresh or my rookie year out in Seattle, tore my shoulder up. You know, I played in three or four games, um, tore my shoulder up, get IR'd. So I was coming off that injury. We signed like T.O. and Braylon Edwards. And we already had Mike Williams from USC and um, Sidney Rice and Golden Tate and Doug Baldwin, uh, Jermaine Curse. You know, that was kind of our receiver room that year. Uh, and so very, very packed talent-wise receiver room. Um, and so I ended up getting released and they wanted to put me on practice squad so that I could fully recover from my shoulder and Detroit called me was like hey we'll offer you and so I was like all right I'm gonna go to Matthew like you know who's better to learn from than Calvin Johnson right like and then all of a sudden the quarterback is literally one of my best friends like you couldn't write a better script and so I end up signing with Detroit um and as fate would have it, our Sean Chappis, Matthew and I's other roommate, had just been released from the Cowboys at the time. And he was going to sign with the Redskins because, I mean, who, who needed fullbacks? This was a little bit different time. Like fullbacks were kind of obsolete. And so Detroit calls him when he's on his way to the airport to get on a plane to go to D.C. And he decides to go to Detroit. I didn't know this because I was already in the air flying from Seattle. So when I landed in Detroit – 
and get to the hotel and get everything like in my hotel room as I'm trying to like figure all that out, Sean comes and knocks on my door and I was like, what? And then that night we end up going to Matthew's house and then Sean and I both lived with Matthew that first year. All of us were, you know, all of us played there at the end of the year together. Um, you know, one, one memory that stands out, we're playing the Falcons and it was like in December at some point. I was in the game, Sean was in the game, Matthew was in the game, and Akeem Dent was across from us. And we were off, you know, all four from the same signing class at Georgia, everything else. And so it was kind of a cool experience there that we got to enjoy together. Oh, that's that's really cool. So, yeah, so that was going to kind of lead to my next question, because obviously that's just an, an awesome story if it's just you and Matthew. Right. So yeah. with Sean being there, too, that, that that's awesome. I, I didn't never kind of put all those dots together. Yeah, yeah. So at some some foreshadowing with with that move, you obviously had good years in Detroit, had had a really good year in Detroit. But what I'm what I'm kind of most interested in, because I know where your story goes, I read that just as fate would have it, you're a big reader. I hear Matthew gave you a book, Playing for Pizza by John Grisham back in 2012. So at that point in time, was that just one of these things where, hey, I'm, I'm going to read this book and, and that's the end of it. And then, you know, your story obviously transitioned. So can you kind of talk about the transition through the end of your, your NFL career and then what was going on around the beginning of 2016? OK, so, um, yeah, that was 2012. Matthew's a lot of people don't know Matthew like he's obviously a fantastic football player. But I guess with social media and the way Kelly does her post of people a lot of people are getting to know Matthew more intimately, you know, him being a father, him being, you know, the person he is like, and so Matthew is scary smart. It's, and the way he thinks is kind of, I mean, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit crazy. I mean, I guess the whole math thing just popped up with him and TJ. Yeah. I, I saw yeah. that. That was, that was wild. Yeah, so like just, he's, he's good at everything. I mean, it kind of, pisses you off like you'll play him in stuff that no one's good at like ping pong or golf or like anything that like or even trivia like it doesn't matter he's got he's always good at everything and it kind of just makes you mad but yeah Matthew's a very big reader and so he actually gave that book to me in 2012 and I remember reading it um and I don't know if you've read the book it's great little great little quick read um yeah yeah, great uh, read. The Dockery guy and him transitioning from, you know, uh, the Cleveland Browns and going through that whole ordeal and then ending up in Parma. So, you know, as fate would have it, I finished my NFL career after being a bit of a journeyman, leaving Detroit to Tennessee and then a coffee stop out in Oakland for a preseason. Um, and I stayed in shape uh, through 2015, um, hoping that I might catch on. And then 2016 happens and – I get an offer from Canada to go up to, where was it, Edmonton or somewhere? I don't even remember now. Um, they gave me a guaranteed offer to go up there and play. And I was a little burnout on football at that moment. And so I called a friend of mine who was a GM for Toronto, and I asked him, like, you know, what's what's life like? And so after our conversation, I turned down the offer. So that was in probably April, April of 2016. So you know, fast forward and I start getting that itch again about September. I start watching football on TV. You know, I've now been out for a full year. I'm like, like maybe I shouldn't have turned it down. Well, if you backtrack a little bit, I turned down um, 
in Jan, sorry, I skipped a part. In January of 2016, I was like, all right, I'm getting away for the playoffs. I'm going to go to Europe by myself. Never been, wanted to go. And I got a phone call at that moment from a guy named Ugo Bonvicini. So Ugo messaged me through like Facebook and wants me to come play. And I mean, I was just like, no, I'm traveling. Like I'm done. So I told him, yeah, just follow up with me next year. Maybe I'll come play. And in the meantime, I was like, Parma, why do I know Parma? And then that's when the book and all that stuff. But then the whole thing with Canada happens. Well, about September, Ugo messages me again. And I was like, this guy didn't give up. Like, and I was like, am I really going to go do this? So I started, I was like, yeah, just, he's like, well, we just, I wanted you to know how our season went. Didn't try to recruit me, just told me about their season. So I went on their website and watched some of their games and did all that. And then, uh, I actually was like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Like, I'm literally having to pick up my life, move to Italy where I know the language, zero. The people, zero. Like, an entire continent that I don't have a single friend at. Like, really, I'm going to do this. So I was sitting there thinking, no, no, no. And then about November, right around um, Thanksgiving, I went to Prague, Vienna, and Budapest. And I was sitting there walking through... Um, I think I was walking in Vienna and I was looking around. I was like, this is amazing. Like how beautiful the city is, blah, blah, blah. And I was sitting there thinking, I was like, when else will I ever get the opportunity to have a paid vacation and live in Italy? And so I called Ugo about a week later and told him I'm coming. And so then I arrive in Parma and. Oh, I, I'll, so I'm just going to tell you, I got tons of questions. I'll tell you why. So, so my, my wife and I both studied abroad in Italy. So I spent about five months living in Firenze. Okay. You speak any Italian? Uh, just a little, like enough to get by and order food while we were there. I mean, I, it was, it was much better when we lived there because you just have to, you know, you just kind of yeah. pick things up and it, it gets, it gets conversational. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Florence is, Florence is obviously a yeah, it was great. hub, so. Everyone speaks English. Everyone speaks English. It's beautiful. You know, you got the Duomo and the Ponte Vecchio yeah. and all that. And But think, Parma is not the same size as Florence. <laughs> so, you know, it, like, it doesn't matter. Like, it, so, that, yeah, I mean, you can only imagine the difference in having to speak. Like, if you had to speak in Florence, imagine what you have to do in, in Parma. Well, and so you can speak to this, too. This is what I've tried to explain to people back in the States is, you know, Italy is no different, really, language wise than America is. Right. Like if you're in the South, we speak English just like everybody does in the Northeast. But we have our own kind of hitches and dialects. And yeah, everything's a little bit different. And Italy's the same way. You know, like we traveled to we traveled to Sicily and the Sicilians. I, I felt like I was at the point where I could pretty much converse with anybody at that point in traveling. And I got to Sicily and man, I was like, I was like, they're not even speaking Italian. Like this is an Italian. <laughs> so it's just, it, it's a whole different animal. The country is sold. So my girlfriend, um, we've been together for like three years now. So I met her in Parma. She's from Parma, born and raised. Uh, and so talking with her, each region and even almost each village, which that's kind of what they call their cities or villages, but has their own dialect and now everyone has it's been pushed where italian is spoken italian is spoken like especially after like world war one world war two everything was pushed outside of dialect and straight to italian but a lot of the older people they can speak italian but they speak dialect to one another um but you know all the younger 
generation from like, I guess our parents on down, everyone speaks Italian. Um, but the schools are obviously very different, you know, the culture and everything else. So it was a big, it was a big culture shock. Cause I, I thought that like I could study, you know, Rosetta stone and being there for four or five months, I'd be able to speak it. And that's definitely not the case. Yeah. So what, so when you, when you traveled like to go to Parma, do you fly into Milan, like to Malpensa or like where, where do you fly into when you go? Yeah. 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 So it all depends on um, whatever is usually cheaper. Uh, if I can get, so usually actually what I've been doing recently is I fly, I do a, I book a trip, a round trip to New York, and then I do a round trip from New York to Milan um, because it's a lot cheaper that way. Because if you go Atlanta to Milan, it might be double the price and you're laying over in New York anyways. Um, but if I have to lay over in Europe somewhere, uh, like if I went from Atlanta to Amsterdam, I usually try to fly into Leonate or Bologna because it's Parma's kind of in between, uh, you know, Leonate and Bologna. It's like an hour from Milan, an hour from Bologna. And, but Malpensa is, I guess you've been, it's, it's on the north side of the city. It's an hour north of the city up near Switzerland. Yeah. So that's all I was going to say. So situate our reader, our, our listeners. So um, Parma is in the, the northern part of Italy, um, which sits at the, at the, it, the Swiss Alps. So it, it can get very cold in the winter. Um, so, so depending what time of year you're there, it's, it, it can be really chilly. And then how far east is, um, are, are you in Parma from, from Venice going to Venezia? So Venice is east of Parma. Um, so Parma, if you look at it, cause it's a boot. So like, if this is the boot right here, like Milan's up here, Parma's just right below it, then Bologna and then Florence is over on the West side. Um, and then Venice would be Northeast. Um, from there. And so going to Verona and Venice and all of that is probably like a two and a half, three hour drive or train ride. Um, so Parma is directly in the center. So Parma is obviously known for the Parmesan cheese, the prosciutto, and then you have Modena, which is like the balsamic vinegar and Modena's Modena and Bologna and Bologna, which is like 45 minutes South is all the ragu lasagna, all of that. So Parma is the gastronomical capital of Italy. And then on top of that, this year, it's the UNESCO, like, um, cultural capital of UNESCO this year for 2020, which I guess that kind of, they're hoping for a lot of tourism because of that. And UNICEF, sorry, UNICEF or something like that. Um, so they were, you know, and they have all their festivals and all that stuff, but the food there is literally, that's how they, that's how they recruited me. So the coach, when I was playing in Parma was from, he played at Illinois state, and then he met his wife in Parma, his like first or second year playing there. And so he stayed and they were married and they actually just moved back to the States. But when I was talking with him on the phone, he goes, I can't promise you a lot, but I will promise you that you will have the best food of your life. And so he was telling me the truth on that part. Yeah, dude, brother, that's real. I was going to say, you know, for all our listeners, Chris looks like he still play, you know, he's in good shape, but I don't know how you didn't gain any weight over there, brother, because I would have just been housing food. I mean, it's just so good and, and everywhere is so good. I lost weight. So I, like right now, I probably weigh like 210 pounds. My last year playing, even in Parma, my last year in the NFL, my last year in Parma, I was about 220, 222. So I'm about 10 or 12 pounds lighter. But every time I go over to Italy, I literally lose weight. Um, I don't know if it's because of the preservatives in the food, the walking around, um, what it is, you know, and obviously breakfast is very different compared to here. Yeah. Yep. So I'm over there for 
you know, three months, then I'm going to lose, you know, 10, 12 pounds. I don't know why it is. Yeah, that's funny. It's so funny you say that because I had the same experience. So when I lived in Florence, you know, I felt like we were eating all the time, right? Because the food's so good. You want to eat everything. But I think to your point, it probably is like the preservatives. Are, everything is so fresh. You walk everywhere. I mean, if I don't, step counters weren't a thing then. But if you had like a Fitbit and you're over there, like when I was there, I probably would have been walking umpteen thousand steps a day. I mean, it's fantastic. So situate our listeners a little bit. My understanding of the Italian league is that each team is allowed two imports. Is that right? That can play at one time. Okay. So you're allowed two Americans and then you're allowed one, what they call Oriundo. So an Oriundo is an Italian American. So he has to have an Italian citizenship or passport. Um, so usually what teams try to do is get a quarterback or you know, or they bring an American quarterback and they get a skilled position of some sort. So that's what most teams are trying to do now. Uh, and they changed the rules from my last year playing. When I, my last year playing, you were only allowed one American on each side of the ball. But the Oriundo could play on on there too. Now you can have both Americans. So say you have two Americans, they both can be on offense and defense. Um, but so you can't have all three on the field at the same time because then you'll just be – you know, the Oriundo to the American to the American, like it would just take take control of the game. But so you can have both Americans on the field at one time. Um, so for us, I was actually over there coaching uh, when all this stuff happened. Uh, we had two safeties. Um, one played at Oklahoma State. Um, Jordan Stearns also had a pit stop with Kansas City and played in the AAF before it folded. Uh, and then Mitchell Breeze, Mitchell, Mitch played at Illinois State. He was a safety. So, and then our quarterback, Riley, Riley played at Eastern Washington and then finished his career at Central Washington. So Riley has Italian citizenship. So he was our Oriundo um, and our quarterback. But Mitch went into college as a receiver, ended up as a safety. Jordan was went into college as kind of a safety, but also played running back in high school and was recruited by some big, um, you know, some division one power five programs to play running back. So we're like quarterback, you know, we also have a kid who can play receiver and we also have a kid who can be our, you know, our short yardage, like running back. So that's how we were going to use that. And that's what a lot of teams do. They'll recruit two guys who can play both sides of the ball and try to find a quarterback that has dual citizenship. Yeah. So for your time in Parma, you played what, 17, 18, 19 seasons, and then went back to coach this year for the 20 season. Is that right? So I played in 17 and 18, um, and then I actually worked at the NFL corporate office in New York in 19. Um, so I did help them from the distance. Like I watched all the film, broke it down, and tried to help coaching from a distance. Um, and then this year I went back. We had a lot of unfortunate um, things go on. Our, so our head coach, our, our head coach when I was there, moved back to the States. And so we got our – New head coach, um, GP is what we called him. He uh, he had been with Parma since the first season. So he had been with Parma for, you know, 25, 30 years since their first season. And he was our defensive coordinator through Andrew's entire time being the head coach. And GP is his first year being the new head coach of Parma, his whole dream. And he had a brain aneurysm and passed away. Oh, man. Like, literally they had practiced on Friday night. I'm talking about like, this was in February. He had, they had practiced on Friday night. Um, and then Saturday morning he was moving. He had just bought his first house 
he's a teacher. He had just bought his first house and was moving into his house. He had a friend coming over to help him move his kitchen stuff in his bed to the new house. And his friend, unfortunately, found him there and he had a brain aneurysm while he was watching film. Preparing for oh, man, that's tragic. How, how old was he? Um, I think he was probably right at 60. Um, I don't quite remember. But oh, man. Yeah, so, too, too young. Yeah, so too it young. was uh, unfortunate. And so I had only planned to stay and help GP and help everybody through like the first, you know, game or two. And when that happened, I, you know, I uh, ended up going over there. I was going to stay for a lot longer period of time because uh, we have another American, um, Brad Miller, who actually works over in Florence for an American university. You know, he, he, he travels back and forth. So him and I were going to kind of tag team the head coaching role and he was going to be the defensive coordinator. We had an American offensive coordinator but, um, you know, he was, he's a very young, uh, young guy. So we, uh, you know, we were going to try to help him out, but let him have play calling duties, but he couldn't run a team. Um, you know, James, James Price is his name. James played at Wyoming. He's like 23. He had just finished, but him and Riley, our quarterback had gone to high school together. And so James actually coached IMG Academy down in Florida. Um, and so he had some coaching experience and we thought it'd be a great opportunity for him to be an offensive coordinator, you know, at 23 years old. So we're going to let him do that, but he wasn't ready to run a team. I'd never really coached, but you know, they, they trusted me more than, you know, a 22, 23 year old to be a head coach. (laughs) So obviously this would have been your fourth year with involvement with the league and with Parma. You obviously have some passion and affinity for it. Can you just talk about, um, how it breathed some life back into you from a football perspective and kind of gave you some renewed joy when, when you, when you went over there and started playing in 17. Yeah. I think like it gets to be at a point where there's really only, there's no job security and there's a lot of politics involved. There's a lot of different things, a lot like normal work, but it's hard when you're putting your body on the line and you lose a lot of the sense of joy to where it turns into not playing for joy. You're playing because it's your job. Like, it's no longer a game. It's your livelihood. It's, you know, I played a game for Detroit on Thursday night. I practiced Friday. I came home Friday night, Saturday, they called me and said, Hey, we're releasing you Sunday. I go back to Detroit Sunday morning to get my stuff. And I walk into the general manager's office doing my exit stuff. And he says, congratulations, you're headed to Tennessee. So I played Thursday in, uh, in Detroit, Actually, we had an away game, um, but I play with Detroit on Thursday, practice Friday. Sunday, I'm in Nashville. Monday, I'm at practice with the Titans. That following Sunday, we're playing a game. And you got to think, like, if you got a family, kids, whatever, luckily I did, don't, and I didn't at the time either. So, you know, you're moving people, you're having to pick up, and it just gets to the point where you lose a lot of your passion, a lot of your joy, and you forget why you started playing the game in the first place. Um, and so, you know, I told you I missed – the competition I had that fuel, that fire still in me. And so when I got the opportunity and I went to Parma, it reminds you of high school football and a little bit of college football where it's a community thing. Like guys, you know, these guys have nine to five jobs and they're coming after work to come play a, play a game. It's a club sport. Like you're playing for the love of the game. And these guys are having their grandmas and their moms. And they are like, you're going to cookouts at their house. You're going, you know, grandma's coming down on the field after the game with like treats to give to you. And after the game, they literally pull like a beer truck up and like the other team stays instead of jumping on the bus for you to hang out on the field. And like, they 
they start playing soccer and like you're sitting there like drinking and eating with your competition like after the game instead of trying to like rush to get back to wherever you're from to see your family like your family's there everyone's on the field the other team's hanging out having beers with you after the game and you sit there and you see that and it's like damn like this is what it's all about like it's not about having 100,000 people watching you it's about you know playing this game for the love of it and the fact is is for me I got to sit there and relate and you know be brought into a culture where I did not speak the language I am a you know from a different culture but yet we relate over a sport and I was brought in like one of their brothers and they like I'm on group chats with them like they send me memes like yesterday I was on a call with one of the uh, one of the young coaches over there because he wanted me to run him through what do I do when I'm a receiver? How do I read the coverage? Like what, what are good concepts versus this coverage versus this coverage, blah, blah, blah. And he just wanted to know stuff. And so I'll speak Italian with him and then like, he'll let me practice my Italian with him and then we'll switch to English and go through football. And so it's just camaraderie and a lot of stuff. And it's, I follow Parma football more than I probably follow anyone else just because of that. Yeah. So, so tell me if this was your experience, my experience there, I, I just laughed when I was over there. Cause I went to my first, um, well, you, you know, you, you live in the neighborhoods and you're in the piazzas and stuff, but then you, I went to my first soccer game there and I mean, it was not what I had been told, you know, I mean, it was, it was a party and I just couldn't help but think, and I was like, man, Italians would fit in just fine in the South brother. Like, Oh yeah. I mean, all, all for a tailgate, all for a sports party. Like I, I just, I thought it was so funny and just the way they are kind of like you described with family is so paramount and mm-hmm. spending time with the people you care about and in that community is so paramount. And I mean, look, man, uh, a soccer community in Italy ain't much different than a small town in South Georgia for a football on Friday no, night. You know, no, it's no, very similar. We, uh, I was lucky because when I was in Parma, my second year, um, the, they call it Calcio, um, the soccer team there, uh, they moved up from the second division. They won the second division. So it meant they were going to Syria. So like Juve, like Milan, like FC, like all of these, you know, major teams that you hear about, they're moving to that division. And they used like Parma at one point was one of the top teams in Europe, um, but they had like lost their sponsorships and owners and everything went downhill and they had to start back at level four. And so while I was there, they won and they were, they beat Pisa. And so they were going to Syria and I guess we say Syria. Um, and so I was there when the bus was playing. So I was supposed to pull in to um, Piazza Garibaldi and everyone in the town is in the center the bus can't even get there. And next thing you know, you see these guys hanging upside down, kicking the roof off of this charter, <laughs> like climbing on top, climbing out. People were going crazy. I have videos all over my phone. Like it was like they won the national title. Like they couldn't even get to the center because people started blocking the bus and going crazy. And it was all anyone could talk about. And I was like, man, like this is, this is incredible. This is exactly what we wish our sport was in, uh, in Italy. But, you know, it was great to see, great to experience. You know, I had, you know, I was very fond of it and I was lucky enough to have a, uh, you know, to be there and witness, witness that passion. Well, that's awesome. I'm so glad you shared all that. What's when I, when we were kind of reading over your story, I was so compelled by that. I just think it's so awesome. And I mean, obviously I'm a little biased because I just have such an affinity for Italy and the Italian mm-hmm. culture. 
I also think too, if, if you, if you have a, a spiritual side to you, it's hard to be in Italy and go to some of the places that you go and, and not see the, the divine hand in that, you know, so, um, just a, just a beautiful, magnificent country. So thank you for, for sharing that experience with us. Uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. we're going to, we're going to close with you today, Chris, with the smart 16. So we're just going to fire some questions at you and, and, okay. uh, see where we get with it. All right. So Alrighty. first question is what is your middle name? My middle name is Michael, uh, after my dad. Who is your funniest teammate? Funniest teammate? Oh, man. That's a tough one. I'm going to have to skip that one. I don't, I don't know. That, that one kind of put me on the spot. I don't... Funniest teammate at Georgia? Yeah, let's let's do Georgia. I mean, I know it's tough because you're mean, in the wide out room. There's yeah. a lot of personalities in that room, brother. There's a lot of personalities, but I, usually the DBs have bigger personalities. But the funniest... There was a guy named Andrew Williams that was really funny. He played for like six years. He got one of those medical red shirts. Uh he was always telling jokes, you know, and there's always funny comments. People say some dumb stuff in locker rooms, uh, but Andrew, Andrew was really funny. Uh, you know, Josh Davis was a kid that was always had something funny to say. He was pretty witty. Um, so, you know, those two guys were pretty, pretty funny. What's your favorite game you ever played in as a dog? Favorite game that I played in blackout Auburn or sugar bowl to watch would have been the Rose bowl. Oh yeah. What is your favorite Georgia rivalry? Auburn or Florida. Hate them both. What is your favorite away stadium in the Southeastern Conference? LSU. I liked LSU. I like uh, Death Valley's pretty pretty cool place to play, especially when you beat them. What is the loudest home game you ever played in? Auburn blackout when we ran out of the tunnel with ACDC, Thomas, and everybody come flying out. Yeah, that was the loud. It's probably the loudest I've ever heard that stadium. So can we have you kind of expand on that a little bit? Cause we just haven't talked to anybody who personally experienced it. What were the, what were the, cause obviously that's such an epic game in the lore of, of Georgia football. I was in Boston in law school at the time and just remember even on TV, it was, it was just electric. So like, what, what was that all like with coming out and warming up in the red, going back in changing and then coming, coming back out? What was that ovation like? So the only people that knew were the seniors and I guess the equipment staff. Coach Rick had told them earlier that year that that was that you know they had voted on it that was going to happen. So the seniors knew they didn't know which game. And so I remember, you know, going into that week, uh, we asked for a blackout. You know, it was a night game, Auburn, all that stuff. And well, it was my job that that week for the receivers because we always either wore red or black tape. Like even you know everybody has the white tape. Well, we always wanted to wear like red and black for some reason. And so. AJ Bryant was a senior at the, that year and it was my turn. And so he told me to get, he told me to make sure that I got both of them. Cause usually we wore black with the red and then red with the white or something like that. I don't remember, but he made sure he was like, no, you need to get both tapes this week. You need to get both tapes this week. You need to get both tapes this week. And I was like, all right, Mike. And so then after warming up, you know, we warmed up in the red, still had no idea. No one, no one had mentioned anything. No one had said a word. Then um, what we did is when we went back into the locker room, we do this prayer where they turn off all the lights, pray, all of that stuff. And so we would do it in this special part of the old locker room, not the new one, obviously. The old locker room, there was like a little, almost like a shower of sorts, um, like a little box area where everybody like crams in. Well, as we finished praying and they turned on the lights, our black jerseys were sitting on our seats. And everyone just goes nuts. And then we change in really quick because like, our team captains, like Katu and all those guys, their team captains, they actually had to put their black jerseys on, red jersey over the top of them. 
And then instead of walking out to where the dog was behind the G, um, they made us stand back so that no one could see us. And so then they, you know, they start playing the music and we just go running out and the back in black comes on the speakers and everyone just goes nuts. Oh, that's awesome. That's so awesome. I'm like getting yeah. chills, like hearing it just because I'm thinking back on that. Like it was just, it was such a, such an electric night. Now, many, yeah, many no people problem. we have talked to have said that was the loudest game they've either been a part of or attended. So that's been a very popular answer. All right. You get to choose the headlining act at the Georgia theater. Who do you choose? I'm going to go with Georgia guy, Ray Fulcher. Ray was our equipment manager when I was in school. Do you know about Ray? I, no, but I, tell us a story. I'm always, I'm always here for a story choose him to headline it just because guy I know he's doing big things you know he's he's starting to really make a name for himself in the industry so that's who I would choose oh that's fantastic we're gonna have to start plugging him then we always want to raise up a Georgia guys so yeah. that's fantastic Ray, Ray Fulcher All right. look him up he, he's, he's written uh, a lot of good songs but uh you know he's, he's a good he's a good old boy awesome if you get to attend the world's largest outdoor cocktail party what cocktail are you mixing cocktail am I mixing <sighs> You know what? I'm going to go Widow Jane bourbon straight. All right. I like it. I like I'm, it. I'm, I'm starting early, and hopefully I'll make it to the game. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you were back in Athens for one meal, where are you headed? What's your favorite place to eat in Athens? Oh, that's tough. It depends. You know, breakfast, I'm going Mama's Boy. Dinner, LRG provisions, but since they don't have the white chocolate cheesecake that I love, I'm going to go with Last Resort. That's true. That's true. I mean, you can't go wrong with that. Did you have any game day superstitions? At Georgia? In the NFL, no, not really. I just had a routine. But at Georgia, I did have one that started my senior year. And it's kind of funny. Um, so my mom would actually, on the dog walk, would hand me a pair of socks when I'd see them on the dog walk. And it just started because before the first game my senior year, I forgot to pack my socks. And so I could have gotten some from the equipment room, but I didn't like the ones that we had. I always had like the kind that I like. And so I forgot to pack them. And so I asked my mom to grab them for me. And in that game, like I had a good game that first game my senior year. So that kind of became our little superstition, tradition, whatever you want to call it. And so, uh, yeah, my mom would hand me socks on the dog walk. Oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah. All right. Favorite Sanford Stadium pregame tradition? I mean, dog walk. Uh, love that. And then I love when we would warm up and then we'd walk back towards the locker room and the band would play. I like both of those. Those were always really cool. I mean, I can I can hear the music and everything else. Like, it's just, yeah, both of those. Can't beat the dog walk, though. I mean, especially on like a night game where everybody's lined up and big game and i mean you can't even see anyone like it's yeah i like it pretty sure we know the answer to this one but black jerseys yes or no <laughs> obviously yes <laughs> yeah yeah without a doubt i loved them <laughs> i mean minus when we got beat against alabama but yeah <laughs> what is the loss you're still not over <sighs> um the one that i played in sure yeah florida senior year we lost in overtime I had a chance on a go route there at the end against a mod black, their safety corner nickel guy. And uh, I slipped trying to pivot to go get the ball could almost ended the game there. And then the next play they picked it off and took it down like the two yard line and ended up winning Um, game that I've watched that I'm not over. 
Alabama national championship. Yeah, that one's that one's a spur in everybody's boot. I think. <laughs> I I was literally sitting. I got tickets through Maria um, Taylor, so Maria and I lived across the hall from one another. So I've known her forever, and so I got tickets from Maria, and I was sitting in between two Alabama fans that are my. Oh that are my friends and there's a picture of me sitting there going like this right here and they're high five and i'm sitting there that that like that like made my heart hurt a little bit like i I feel secondhand pain that you experienced so boston at boston i watched it together and um my brother came over to watch it with us he's not a dogs fan but he just wanted to come hang out with us he was excited that we were in a title game which kind of wanted to support us or whatever so you know I think what gets lost in that game, right, is how it seemed like impending doom was going to happen at the end of the game, right? Oh, yeah. I kept saying they're going to make this field goal. They're going to do this. They're gonna, yeah. Yeah. So, like, me and Boss are looking at each other and we're like, we're like, can't believe it's going to happen again. And then he missed and we looked at each other like, oh, my God, it's going to happen. <laughs> so, I was sitting where I was sitting. I could see. And Mel Tucker, um, he was a defensive coach for Chicago for a while. That's right. Yeah. And so I played against his defenses and I actually scored on a go route versus cover two when I was in Detroit. Matthew hit it right down. It was actually Tim Jennings was guarding me. It was my first touchdown. Oh, interesting. Um, And it was literally on the left side. And so when I saw the coverage, I went, no, like, cause I was, I guess I watched the field a little differently. And so I literally yeah. see the ball snapped and I see the coverage and I see it busted. And I put my face in my hands before he ever threw the ball. I went, no. Oh. And I was like, oh. So yeah, that one was, that one was, oh, I broke my heart for everybody. So for other painful memories in that stadium, I was in the Benz the next December for the Alabama SEC title that, game. I watched that one too. Oh, man. That one was that one was brutal too, because it just felt like all night. Like, didn't you feel this way in the stadium? They just—I even thought this from their fans. They just didn't seem in it. No, didn't like, didn't it. seem like they were there. No, they really didn't. It, it, it and it just felt and, like and it was going to happen. Jay I don't know. Comes it, in and it's like we were prepared for their starter. We weren't prepared for the backup. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, more, moving on to a yeah. lighthearted question <laughs> instead of the doom and gloom of rehashing <laughs> gut punches. Uh, what's your hard order at the varsity? Nothing. Uh, um, yeah, I don't know if my can handle the old greasy B anymore. But let's see. Uh, if I had to make an order, I'll go with my old order. I would say a uh, chili dog, chili steak, fries, and frosted orange. Oh yeah, that's what I'm gonna. Uh-uh. I'm totally on board with that order. That's I'm here for that. All right. There ought to be a constitutional amendment outlawing noon kickoffs. Yes or no? Absolutely not. I love noon kickoffs. I'm probably the only person in the world that loves them. But I think as a player, I was like, all right, perfect. Noon kickoff. We're done by 3.30. I can shower. I catch the second half of the 3.30 game. Then I turn around, had enough time to like grab dinner, cook out with family, friends, all that just in time to head downtown. You were the first player to say that by far. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they sucked getting up and getting ready because especially when I was playing, they, we were staying out at Lake Lanier. So it was an early morning. But I'm also an early person. I wake up naturally. It doesn't matter. I'm waking up at 6.30 regardless, like 6, 6.30 every morning. So it did not bother me at all. I enjoyed it. But, I mean, the NFL, every game's at right. 1. I mean, 
So, you know, so it didn't matter. Like you just get used to it. And I loved it. I also like that. Finally, I mean, good job for you, Chris. Finally, someone has had the chest hair to say something about going downtown after Saturday night. Like finally, (laughs) finally, (laughs) it is, it is the greatest, greatest college town in America. Yeah. Like, I mean, you asked me what I'm drinking at the cocktail party. I mean, yeah, I'm going, I'm going bourbon and I'm going downtown. Like, yeah, I know we, there was a lot of instances where we got in trouble and got banned and all that stuff, but yeah, I, no, I enjoyed, I enjoyed downtown Athens as much as the rest of As you Obviously, I didn't get to go as frequent as most college students in uh, the fall, but I definitely enjoyed my time attending uh, adult establishments. Yeah, yeah, as you should have. What an epic town. Yeah. All right, last question. Uh, college football playoff, find how it is or bump it up to eight teams? <sighs> That's tough. All right, if you expand to eight teams, you have to stop there. I mean, give every Power 5 conference guaranteed member, and whether it's your conference champion or whoever you vote in, every Power 5 gets gets one, and then the best, the next best three. So, obviously, the SEC gets four teams. <laughs> but, yeah. um, that's right. But, uh, yeah, they uh, that's what I – I mean, yeah, I think it's tough, but why can't colleges, you know, play an extra game or two? I mean – like I know coaches and everybody else is historic and blah, blah, blah. But like you play week in and week out. What's the problem with extending after the SEC championship, you know, waiting two weeks, playing before Christmas or whatever, and then turn around and playing New Year's Day two weeks later or, you know, a week later. Okay. And then waiting two weeks or whatever, you know, however you want to structure it. What's the, what's wrong with adding? I know you start, everybody starts looking at financials and the business side of everything, but yeah, like, if you want to know who it is, I think, you know, you do eight teams. People start going, why don't you go 16? You know, blah, blah, blah. Stop at eight. You know, you got power five. Take five. Then you got the next best three. All right. I have a, I have a functional follow-up to that question because you bring up a point that I've always just wondered about from the player side. I mean, I know how I feel about it from a fan's perspective and from an athlete's perspective in general. I've always thought it was weird, especially on a football team where it's my contention that football team live and breathe an organism, right? And you change and shift each week and you build momentum and you get in a rhythm and all these things. So let's say 07, for example, which obviously kind of rebuts my argument a little bit because there was no drop-off, but you know, you're going into the end of the season, you're playing hot, everything's clicking, and then, oh, wait, we're one of the best teams in the country, and now we're going to take four weeks off before we play again. I mean, is for a player, is that weird? Do you feel that at all? I mean, is that a real thing? No, I mean, it's because you already know what's happening. It's not – It's the hard part is staying hot, obviously, as I guess you're kind of alluding to. Um, but you already know it's coming just because that's – a custom in college football at that time, you know, it was like, all right, we're playing Thanksgiving week versus Georgia tech. If we make the SEC championship, it's the following week. If not, we're hoping for a new year's day bowl, you know, like that's, that's the thought process. And so, you know, it's tough because you got to stay with workouts. You got to stay back in shape. You have finals, you got all of that stuff, but you know, practice doesn't, you don't practice every day anymore. So I agree with you. I think, especially if they moved it up to eight teams, it would be like, all right, you play your conference championship, and then it's, I would probably play the following week, you know, one versus eight, blah, 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 and then take off Christmas, go to New Year's Day, and then 10 days after that, play the national title. That's what I would do. I mean, but they never asked me my opinion, so. 
Well, I think that I think they should after that answer. I'm all in on that, brother. All right, Chris. Well, you, you answered everything great, and thank you so much for uh, for being so so generous with your time with us. We certainly enjoyed hearing everything, and, and happy to hear you're doing great. And so, um, hey, man, you're welcome back anytime. We certainly enjoyed it. Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. All I right. enjoyed it. If you're having more questions on Italy, I got all kinds of uh, suggestions and anything else. Anything oh yeah, we're for that, man. All right, Chris. Well, thank you so much. Yep. Thanks, guys. That wraps up our talk with Chris. Boss, what were your thoughts? Chris's interview was great. I, I loved, first and foremost, how we finally have someone who experienced the blackout game against Auburn. And we kind of got the ins and outs of that. Now, we've been wanting that since we started this. So to get that firsthand knowledge about how they were doing their prayer and then, you know, they didn't really know exactly what was going on. And like you said in the interview, you got chills like talking about it and listening to his story. Like I'm getting chills just thinking about it right now, thinking about that story and did the same thing when I was editing this. Uh, That was just awesome. Also his story about his just camaraderie with Matthew and Sean Chappis and everything and how it kind of, you know, his college career came kind of full circle with Detroit, even though it was for a short amount of time, how they got to play together. And then that really cool story, how it was him, Matthew, Sean, and he was they're playing against Atlanta and sitting across the field from Akeem Dent um, in that one game towards the end of the season. They were all in the same signing class. It's just kind of cool. Those little those little things that, you know, you don't think about. Um, once they get to the league, you know, we think about them as dogs. And then once they get to the league, it's, they kind of lose track of that. You know, it's just, that's, that was really cool aspect of it. And then the Italy story, that's what Chris is most well known for, I think. And it's just crazy. It it really is. If you think about it, it it is really the story of a book. And that's just amazing to me that it's something that was fiction and became reality for his life. And he's just so ingrained in, in Parma and that culture. And he cares so much more about that. I'm pretty sure he follows like, you know, former friends like Matthew and stuff like that at Detroit. But I mean, he's just, he cares more about the Parma Panthers than he does about anything in the NFL. And, you know, he has perfectly fine with that. And I just think that that's awesome. I thought it was really interesting how he talked about, going to Parma kind of reinvigorated him for the game itself. And I think that's understandable, right? Like, I think that's a story that we've heard a couple different times on this, that once the guys leave Athens and leave, you know, playing for the dogs and go to the NFL, it's a different endeavor, right? It's not just, man, we're doing this for fun and we love it and all this. It becomes a livelihood and a business. And so I think I think guys miss out on that because, I mean, I I think any athlete would speak to the fact that part of the joy of it is spending the time with your guys, you know, and having that experience together. And it it just doesn't seem like that's 100 percent how it is in the NFL, which I think, to your point, made his Detroit story 100 times cooler. Right. Because, number one, it's it's neat by itself if just him and Matthew get to play together in Detroit. But I just thought it was like what a, what a kismet type thing where he says he lands and Sean had like just gotten there too. I just, I don't know. I thought that whole story was awesome um, that they weren't aware that, that that was all going to happen. So, so what a neat thing and what a special thing that the three of them got to share with that experience. And um, you know, the Italy thing is just so great. If you, if you have ever been there, it's one of those places that kind of just gets under your skin and never leaves you. Um, it's just a, it's an awesome, awesome place. And the lifestyle there is so different that you can't help but kind of fall in love with it. The culture is 
very loving and very gracious and very open. And um, so it's understandable to me why he he fell in love with it and why he had such a kinship with everybody. Um, I also thought it was neat to hear the story about how he went back to like help coach, you know, I mean, uh, uh, that to your point, I think that shows the affection that he has for the league and the impact that it made on his life. And so that was cool. Yeah. Really loved talking to Chris. And one of the cooler things about talking to him is in the smart 16, he sets us up for our guests for next week. Um, so Ray Fulcher is going to be with us and we're super excited about that. We would not have known about Ray's story if not for Chris. So thank you to Chris for sharing that. Cause we had a great chat with Ray too. So, um, I, I love talking with Chris. Um, would love to have him back on the show to talk dogs football, maybe pick some games in the fall or something like that. I just I thought he was a, a super enjoyable guest. I mean, shoot, I could I could talk to him for another half hour just about Italy, but uh, I don't know if everybody wants to hear that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was great, and, and thank you so much to Chris for coming on and and guys support him in any way you can and and, and go check out the Italian American Football League. I mean, go go check out those teams and their websites and you know a lot of them have formal websites some of them are on facebook but go check it out i mean it's cool some of them have highlight videos and stuff and Parma's one of the more organized ones it seems like from a web presence perspective so support those organizations any way you can too because you know the broader the game the better it is for everybody so thank you again to chris and go dogs sick them go dogs hey, george is better now You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.